With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I can strongly recommend a 7% solution of cocaine. Would you care to try it? No, indeed. I speak not only as your friend, but as a medical man. How can you risk such damage to the great powers with which you have been endowed. I cannot tell you how it clarifies and stimulates the mind. Yes, and destroys it in time. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. That is why I've chosen my own profession, or rather, created it. For I am the only one in the world. The only unofficial detective. The only unofficial consulting detective. I take no credit in my cases. The work itself, the pleasure of finding a field for my particular powers, is my highest reward. <laughs> you can close that drawer. You have made the wrong diagnosis, Doctor. I have my stimulant here. And welcome once again. We are back for another episode of Discussing Who. And tonight, I am one-on-one -on -one with the none other than the one, the only, Lee Shackelford. Hey, Lee. Howdy. How are you? Good to... Uh, well. yeah. good, you know, I was thinking, Clarence and I have had so many episodes on one-on-one. -on -one. This will be our first solo episode together. That's it, yeah. Glad well, to have you day, here. Clarence and I will do one. And uh, exactly, yeah, you know, y'all just kick me out sometime. Feel free to, and uh, feel free to go for it. So Clarence couldn't be with us for this episode, but I have a feeling that the, t this particular episode's topic, which is going to be Sherlock Holmes, I've got the perfect candidate who can talk maybe just a little bit about Sherlock. Uh, so I'm going to skip the news. I'm going to skip any updates or anything like that. And unless Lee has any objections, I'm going to go right into Sherlock. What do you think? Go for it. I, I know that you like Sherlock Holmes. Is that a true statement? That is a true statement. All right. So tell me what brought you to Sherlock or Sherlock Holmes, the character. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I... Uh, 
I often feel like I should blush to admit this, but I, uh, growing up, I didn't read the stories. I read a lot, a lot of uh, fiction, a lot of British fiction. I've always been an Anglophile, um, but um, but I but I was watching a, a late movie. It came in on the, the end of a movie one time and saw um, this thrilling scene with uh, Basil Rathbone playing Sherlock Holmes, and I was entranced. And I and I said to myself, you know. I ought to find out more about this Sherlock Holmes guy. And it was just about the time that DC Comics was trying to launch a Sherlock Holmes comic um, that would be very faithful to the original, to the source material. So it would be very Victorian and um, be illustrated uh, the stories. And they did uh, one issue. It, it, didn't, it didn't fly. But how I loved that one comic. Um, and I read it over and over again. And... Um, and it was based on two of the, the canonical stories, the stories of Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the 60 stories. And so, uh, you know, that made me run out and, and get them, which is super easy. And uh, this would have been in the mid-70s. So this is in the – this is way before you could just download them on the internet. Right. I mean, because that was going to be my next question was yeah. – and you don't have to tell me how old you were then, but I was going to ask you about when that was. So. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, that kind of hooked you. So once you got out of the comic and you started actually reading, you know, uh, the actual stories, what yeah. kept your interest? What kept you entertained? That's a great question. You ask great questions. Well, thank you. Um, it's a gift that you have. Um, I, I, I've, I've pondered this a lot over the years. I think I was very interested in Holmes, the problem solver. Um, I, I think that one of the reasons why the character persists is because we, we as humans, we're reassured by the idea of somebody who's going to solve our problems. Somebody who's going to kind of come in at the last minute when everything looks bleakest and say, well, yeah, but what you didn't know was this. Whoosh. And then all is made clear and justice is meted out and... Um, you know, virtue, virtue triumphs. So yeah. would it be an accurate statement then to equate Sherlock Holmes to also being a superhero to some degree? He is a superhero. He's a superhero of the mind. And would that not also make his genre surpass fiction and, well, not necessarily fiction, but uh, surpass a mystery or a whodunit into almost the science fiction in the sense of, he is using his mind, a tool, in order to, in a, in a way that most people do not, in, right. a, in a way to solve A, B, C, or D. That's, yeah, exactly. Uh, his mind is not like anybody else's. Um, and, yeah, so he is, we get that, that's, that um, aspect of his being sort of an alien, you know, which is one of the things that appeals to me about Superman when the story is told that way. Uh, when we emphasize the fact that he's, you know, not from around here, and it, and I, I guess I was a, I was a, um, a, I was in my young teens when I started reading uh, the Sherlock Holmes stories, and um, and very much a Star Trek fan also, and my favorite character has always been Mr. Spock, and I think um, if you're a young teen who's um, uh, kind of a nerd and uh, kind of. <laughs> is an ultra nerd and, um, you know, is not perhaps popular in school and socially awkward and so on, then these characters who are outside of the norm, 
where Spock is, as far as we know, the only half Vulcan. He's the only Vulcan on the Enterprise, you know, uh, that that kind of thing. And Holmes is cut off from the rest of the world as well because he he's just uh, he's just different from everybody else. So answer this: Do you take it that his isolation that you see, whether it's the book, whether it's the comic book, whether it's a movie, whether it's on TV, is that I just don't relate? Or is it self-imposed? Or is it just, in a way, some level of disdain for the normal person? I've been able, I've had the pleasure of playing Sherlock Holmes on the stage several times. And and I'm always struggling with exactly that, you know? And I think that's one of the reasons why there is a Holmes scholarship, why there are people who enjoy writing and thinking about Sherlock Holmes. And we've been doing it for you know nearly 120 years now. And uh, and I think it's exactly that we're trying to figure out. Does he do this on purpose? Is it a curse? Is it a blessing? Is it, you know? And, and you see in the films and plays um, and all the pastiches, you know, all the, the the other writers who come to to try to tackle this character, they struggle with that. Um, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss's approach is that uh, this is a sort of curse, but he's learned to live with it. Okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about or ask you about is you actually, because you said you had played Sherlock Holmes on stage, mm-hmm. you actually wrote a, a, a play that, correct me if I'm wrong here, was an off-Broadway play, and mm-hmm. it is also available at Amazon.com. It is indeed. It is indeed. So tell us about that, and tell us why you wrote it, what, what, what gave you the idea or inspired you to write it, and then... When you played that character on stage, at where did you, or or what point of view were you going in your interpretation of of Holmes? Oh, bless you! These are the things I always want to talk about about this, and and people don't ask me. You see, I didn't set this up, folks. I didn't ask him to do this. No, see, see, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm going to say that this was all of those wasted hours of watching Oprah uh, over the years. You know, I just you know, osmosis, I guess. There you go. Well, yeah, you've learned something. You learned there something. you go. Well, yeah. Uh, I was in graduate school, and um, I got to play Holmes in a production of um, The Incredible Murder of Cardinal Tosca, which is a very fun, um, over-the-top kind of, eh, it's, it's a melodrama. I said over-the-top. I guess that's not really fair. But, uh, but it is cracking good fun. I've always wanted to play Holmes in the Gillette play. You know, William Gillette wrote the first uh, stage play about Sherlock Holmes, and he played Holmes in it for something like 50 years. I mean, he was very old when he finally uh, gave up the role. But um, anyway, uh, I, I so loved being uh, the Holmes in Cardinal Tosca. Um, and this is while I was in uh, an acting study program, and everybody was talking about what they were going to do after they graduated, you know, what happens to you when you leave an acting school? At the time, a lot of us were saying what you need to do is to create something for yourself. You know, don't go out into the world looking to be cast. You need to to make the movie yourself. You need to make the play yourself, you know. And so I wanted to create a one-man show that I could perform, you know, as long as I can about Sherlock Holmes. Okay. Because at least at the time, I had the physical resemblance and I was working on the the voice and accent and so on. And so I wrote this play called uh, The Greatest Man Who Never Lived. Okay. And I performed it exactly once. And um, 
to very mixed reviews. Some people said it's a good effort, but you know what's missing is Watson. Okay, I'm with you. Keep going. That Holmes really doesn't make any sense without Watson. And uh, and somebody literally said to me, the play you need to write is Holmes and Watson. I said to myself, self, that's good advice. <laughs> and went back and read all of the stories again. The original, the, 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 the 56 short stories and the four novels, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. And came away saying, by golly, you're right. Uh, it's about this, this synergy, this, uh, this relationship between these two people. Whether Conan Doyle intended that or not. But, but that's sort of what happens. And there is uh, a story in which Conan Doyle tried to kill Holmes off. He was sick of writing about him, and he wanted to get rid of him once and for all. And so he has him die in mortal combat with the, his nemesis, Professor Moriarty. Um, and then another story where he bowed to public pressure and figured out how to bring him back. And in the story where Holmes comes back, um, he basically he shows himself to Watson, says, surprise, I wasn't dead all this time. Uh, and they basically pick up where they left off. You know? Yeah. The relationship is restored. And for the first time, really thinking about these as if they were real people, I read that story and I thought, if a friend did that to me, I would punch him in the face. I would... <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and as I'm sitting here listening to you, uh, and especially when you said to the point of it was missing something, it was missing Watson, that you needed the Watson character to complete the uh, Holmes character, yeah. what I was actually thinking was Batman and Robin. Yeah, it would be, would Batman still be the same Batman without having the Robin character, regardless of who is in the role, but mm -hmm. without having that outside character that's the audience relation, and bringing it even further back home to us, would the Doctor still be the Doctor without a companion? One of my favorite uh, uh, Doctor Who stories, um, you know, he doesn't have a companion. But um, I, and I guess Deadly Assassin is the first time that ever happened. Mm -hmm. But he is surrounded by other people, you know, right. and his nemesis. So yeah, he's always got to have somebody who is there to relate to, to be in 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 conflict with. Uh, yeah, otherwise we don't care. Because of look course. at <laughs> you know look at look at any of the you know look at let's let's go with the Joker. The Joker would be useless without Batman. Well, exactly. No, you know, yeah, they, the Doctor Doom two sides of the same without form. the Fantastic Four, Luther all. without Superman, all of that. Right. So, so how? So you wrote. So you went back. You went to the not the drawing board. You went to the writing board. You yeah. rewrote the play. And tell me about the reception version two, the new version, the the Holmes and Watson. Yeah, once I started showing that around, people said, you're onto something here. Because if they were familiar with the, with the original stories, then they said, you know, I've always wondered about that. When Holmes came back from the dead, why wasn't that uh, a disaster for these two guys? What, if, if Holmes kind of walks in the door and says, surprise, let's go back to, to solving crimes, you know? It's not that easy, buddy. And, and that addresses Holmes's... Um, his social awkwardness, his his uh, his difficulty in perhaps understanding other normal people, you know. 
Go ahead. So that's what my play is about, is about them butting heads. And, and there's some there's a there's a contrivance that that get that uh, has them uh, basically locked into Baker Street. They can't leave. Interesting. So uh, uh, also interesting in the sense of if you're looking at it from a play perspective, if they're locked into the same place, they can't get out. You don't have to worry about changing sets. That's right. And I've always thought, you know, everybody's going to want to do this play, right? Because it's only got one set and two characters. <laughs> and, and, you know, there is something about I don't care what hmm. people say. There is something about any time that I've ever been to a live play, my favorite thing that I would like, I love to see is any type of murder mystery or any type of mystery set in one place where the characters are all, you know, you don't have to worry about changing scenery, changing whatever. They've got one place that they're at and the lights go out and somebody else is killed or whatever, you know, but you get my mm -hmm. point. It's yeah. something about being there live. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you're in the same room with it, and it's, yeah, it is it's like it's uh, happening 20 feet away from you. Take it away from you doing it in person. Let's talk about it on television. So yeah. you mentioned Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss before. Tell us what you think about the current BBC version of Sherlock. Uh, I think the, the, the scripts are um, kind of hit and miss. It's it's interesting, but they are when they are brilliant, they are brilliant, and and that sets such a high bar for them. I think this happens on Doctor Who too. That anything less than genius um, uh, suffers very badly in comparison. And I know some people, some of my Sherlockian friends, who are just made furious by things on the show. I I've never seen one that I didn't enjoy watching, but some more than others. But they they've taken these characters and the relationship between these two men very, very seriously. They really know the, the canon. They know the 60 stories very well. So even though they're not literally doing Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, they're constantly uh, referring to it. And, you know, some of those are sort of Easter eggs or sort of winking at uh, those of us who know those stories well. But But they're very attentive to what makes Holmes and Watson work in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And it's also creating it for a new audience. Right, yeah. right. And it's and making it relatable. Really yeah, yeah. I, I really, uh, I deeply admire the fact that they've been able to do both of those things. That they've done, they've made a, uh, a Sherlock Holmes that I think Conan Doyle himself would have approved of, but they've also done something new, something startlingly new. So what do you think about the actors' portrayal themselves? I, I, I just adore them. I just think they're, they're fabulous. Um, <clears throat> we really see, when we're introduced to those characters, we meet Watson first and we, get, we experience Holmes from Watson's point of view. He, he is our audience. You know, he's our, the, the surrogate for the audience, our, our avatar. And... Um, and that's exactly what happens in the first of the Sherlock Holmes stories. We meet Watson first, and, uh, and we start hearing about this this lunatic, and uh, he finds himself living with him. And uh, it's uh, so yeah, they they did something new and honored the old at the same time. But um, you know, I want to comment on something you said about yeah. it's really being a hit or a miss with with Sherlock. 
And I know that they're almost a feature-length episode, but still, when you only have three or four episodes per season, your margin of error is very, 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 and let me add one more very to it, (laughs) slim. I mean, you don't, you, you know, you can't have a mediocre, even with Doctor Who, I know we have 12 to 13 episodes a year, except for this year, but, um, you know, you have more episodes, but still, when you only have that many episodes, you, yes, we feel a bad episode here or there, but if you only have four, but gosh darn it, knock it out of the ballpark every time. That's right. And, and I think that's why sometimes um, a lot of us who are fans of the show feel really disappointed, and, and I do. I think it's because the standard um, is incredibly, it's insanely high. Yeah, four episodes of a season. Good heavens. What? One of the things that I really like about the actors and how they portray it, even though it is set in the modern day, there is something about the portrayal of Sherlock in the current BBC version that is totally not, you know, not 2000. There's something about him that's almost like he's, in the 1800s, there's just an old presence mm-hmm. to him. Do you feel that too? Yeah, exactly. And um, <clears throat> sort of their Christmas special um, last year uh, had them in in the Victorian era, and um, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful to see them uh, uh, living and uh, walking around in that world, and and uh, and and they seemed perfectly at home because I think it, it's exactly as you say. We. We've always sort of had this feeling like they were Victorian gentlemen anyway. Right. Even and, even yeah. Mrs. Hudson, to mm-hmm. some degree. That's right. Which I think the way they have portrayed her is is very good in the show. It's wonderful, yeah. And, and her relationship with Holmes, yeah. And now tell me this. There have been several big screen versions. There have been various small screen versions. Mm-hmm. Name me the actor whose portrayal of Sherlock Holmes steals your number one spot. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing's, nobody's ever going to unhorse uh, Jeremy Brett. In Thank my you. Mind. I agree. Yeah. Learn then from this story to be circumspect in the future. For those foul passions whereby our family have suffered may not be loosed again to our culpable ruin. 8th of November, 1742 is an intriguing preamble. I read of Sir Charles Baskerville's death. From a medical point of view, it was a poorly informed article. Uh, no, thank you. He died of, of dyspnea and cardiac exhaustion. Were the conditions linked or were they parallel? Though they were linked, in my opinion. There was some... some facial distortion. Caused by the cardiac pain, presumably? Yes. You sound doubtful. It was not merely facial distortion. Well, in the year 1692, Hubert of Baskerville abducted a young girl. But she escaped across the moor that night. Cursing! He uncanneled his pack of hounds and hunted her down like a wild animal. When his three drunken companions followed, they found the girl in a deep dip or goyal dead from fear and fatigue. They were also confronted the cause of her death, a huge demonic hound. Even as they looked, the hound tore the throat out of Hubert of Baskerville, 
One companion died that very night of what he saw, and the other twain were broken men for the rest of their days. That, Jeremy Brett was actually, I was introduced to Sherlock Holmes on television through watching Jeremy Brett. And I remember getting it on Netflix, consuming it, and to this day, I have not watched the last episode of the last series <laughs> simply because I want to know that there is yeah. one more Jeremy Brett that I've not seen. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's completely by choice. It's not like Doctor Who and missing episodes. There is one <laughs> that I have consciously said I don't want to watch simply because there's another one out there I can say at some point in the future I can go That's watch right. that. <laughs> so what what it's, about his portrayal that made you say I like him. I think his is better. His is better than A, B, or C. I think he captured, for, to my mind, Holmes's eccentricity and his theatricality in a way that um, is very different from what Benedict Cumberbatch is doing. But Benedict's Holmes is really is an alien being. He he is not from this planet, and he thinks we're very strange. You know, um, and he says so. You know, he, 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 there's an episode where he says, how, how can you stand living in that tiny mind? <laughs> Which is obnoxious, of course, but this has always been part of his character, is he's talking to people that way, and you want to just, um, you want to hate him, but, but then he saves the day. And, and you can't. And you, yeah, then you, you forgive a lot. But, um, but Brett's... Um, Sherlock Holmes is very much a, a human being. He's a he's a Victorian gentleman, and he knows how to behave himself. But sometimes he just doesn't care to. But he loves putting on a show. He loves calling attention to himself. And I and I that's that's in the stories. If they they were they were working very hard to be very faithful to Conan Doyle, and uh, I think Jeremy Brett found that interesting in the stories that Holmes loves to. Well, he says himself, I can't resist a, a dash of the theatrical. And even when he called Mrs. Watson's name, and I probably won't say this right, but Miss, Mrs. Watson or something, you know. Yes. It, it oh, was yes. Very no. animated, very, you know, no, that, over the top. But it's something my, uh, that I remember. That's my, uh, yeah, that's my uh, one, uh, one word impression of Jeremy Brett. Watson! Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Mrs. Watson! Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, very, very, very good. A mutual friend got a copy of Holmes and Watson to him, and he wrote me about it. God bless him. And uh, he and he just said, "Bravo, fine play." But it, that was while they were making the the, the Sherlock Holmes um, series that we were talking about. And he closed his little note to me by saying, "Um, um still trying to capture him. Never will." <laughs> JB. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I, I got fan mail from Isaac Asimov and Jeremy Brett. You know, talk about postcards to cherish for the rest of your life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So mm. I, if you don't mind my asking, I want to mm. take this a little in another direction. Oh, you had a project. Well, let me say this before mm. I get into the uh, – <laughs> let me introduce it this way. Is it a true fact that the Martha scene – and Superman, Batman uh, versus Batman, Dawn of Justice is w equally beyond you, uh, amongst you and I, a scene that we do not like. 
<laughs> yeah, correct? I think that's fair to say. So, so the Martha moment in Superman versus Batman is a negative. Yes. That's correct. Okay, good. We got that down. It's a true story. <laughs> true, true fact. The Martha moments and what I'm about to ask you to talk about, to me, were not negative moments. To me, they were st- uh, they were the scenes that stole the show. Wow. So um, if you don't know where I'm going with this yet, I'm talking about your remake of the Sherlock concept. Oh, Martha, yes. Yes. Now you know who Martha is. Yes. Okay. I see what so, you mean. So tell everyone who Martha is that I'm talking about as you explain your, your re envisioning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that was nice. I, I was not following you there for a minute, but yeah, Martha is, um, is mentioned in the Sherlock Holmes canon, um, in a way that we believe that that's Mrs. Hudson's name. So she, we guess Martha Hudson, uh, nobody ever calls her that of course, but anyway, uh, but that's just something that becomes accepted in the uh, the larger Sherlock Holmes universe. When um, um, I, I wrote a uh, uh, an up t- uh, a modern day Sherlock Holmes uh, pi- a web series pilot uh, that was going to the idea was that uh, Holmes and Watson are young women living in uh, contemporary America. Which, you know, of course, on elementary, Watson is a woman, and there had been other uh, versions of uh, tellings of a, a Holmes and Watson relationship where, where Holmes is a woman, uh, where, where Watson's a woman. But we never see Holmes as a woman, and, and I was very interested in that. And uh, the name Herlock came to mind, just take off the S. Right, and right. Um, <laughs> I immediately, when I started talking this project up to people, I got two reactions. Either people said, oh, Herlock, that's brilliant. That's fantastic. Or you're not really going to call it that, are you? <laughs> um, somebody else said, so this is porn, right? <laughs> <laughs> really? No. Yeah. I mean, they were <laughs> no, it isn't. But okay, well maybe that's a problem with the name. Maybe I don't, you know, I don't know what people are going to think. But um, but yeah, we we wanted Watson to be a uh, a young woman, a very bright young woman who discovers the Sherlock character uh, on the internet, and uh, so they have this uh, this relationship. They solve their first case together, basically via Skype, mm-hmm. and. Um, w- and we just thought that would be a very fun way of doing it and also very inexpensive. So, um, but yeah, we, if you browse the bookstore shelves and look at contemporary mysteries, look at the, the cover art on the books, there's always a cat. Right. And, um, and my, my, my brilliant wife, uh, Karen, she said, um, well, we gotta have a cat. <laughs> um, and I said, "Oh well, that's Mrs. Hudson. Obviously, you know that's that's who that is the the one who's always there and but doesn't really say anything." So um, yeah, so we named uh, Johnny's cat Martha. See, and, and what's funny is I did not know the Martha Hudson take. Yeah. I just knew Martha was the cat, and that I liked right. Martha the cat. <laughs> I did not. Now I have a new subtext or yeah, context yeah, that's, to it. That's what that was about. Was the 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 uh, the uh, 
the omnipresence of Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> she becomes the cat in this thing, but yeah, she was re she she was re envisioned and reincarnated as a cat. <laughs> she came back as a as a cat, and um, that is uh, the actress who played uh, Johnny Watts, our uh, Watson character, uh, the the uh, fabulous Atlanta Jordan. That is in fact her cat, Ramona. Ah, cool. Uh, so they, they, you know, obviously they had a pre-existing relationship. I was going to say because they, they, they did a good job playing off of each other. They're wonderful, but you know, this is the miracle of editing. A lot of the their their back and forth stuff, uh, they were filmed completely separately. Really? We shot, yeah, we shot all of Johnny's stuff first, and uh, then kind of had to coax Ramona into doing some of that stuff. Uh, oh, uh, it was two months later. Wow. Well, yeah, well, the, well, you guys did a good job, and I, you know, I remember back last year when, um, you know, you and I both got the email from Lewis about the same time of, hey, you know, you've uh, been a fan, hey, you know, I'd be interested, and in, you know, test. Really, he didn't say this, but I know what he was doing. He was testing us out to see, yeah. you know, how how we did and everything. And I remember the first thing I did whenever, you know, he said, you know, I'm gonna, you'll be on with a show with a guy named, you know, Lee Shaf- Lee Shackelford. So the first thing I do is go to the internet and start looking up things. And I'm that's how I find Herlock. And I'm sitting there watching it, and I'm going, oh my. Goodness, I can never, ever, ever, ever keep up with this guy. So, compliment to you that yes. you made that that good of a uh, first impression with Herlock and all the other stuff you've done. So, um, compliments to you. Uh, thank you. So, yeah, and of course, I mean the the, the uh, what you're seeing and the kind of the genius of the way uh, uh, Herlock works as well as it does is because of my great friend, um, the director and editor of that film. That's David Duncan, and uh, yeah, so uh, a lot of what makes her, you know, that's uh, that's yeah, that's that's David. You know, and that's one thing that I have learned in doing. You know, the, you know, these episodes doing, you know, I, I used to hear Lewis say, well, you know, I'll take care of that in post-production or, oh, yeah. I'm going to do this in post-production. And mm-hmm. until I started learning what post-production actually was, it was <laughs> like, ooh, I've said this many times to him. I have a new respect for you now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, when you learn what fix it in post actually means, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot more fixing in post than uh, than a lot of people, you know, give credit for, give give thought to. Yeah. So so let me ask you this: We have uh, you know pretty much covered Holmes and Watson. So you, what are, what's your next big project? Is there anything you could tell us about? Um, I, I'm only working on this in kind of. Uh, um, it's in my mind, but I do have some friends who, who say they want to get involved with this. But um, the Sherlock Holmes world has been expressed in every conceivable artistic form, right? There have been uh, uh, obviously films about Sherlock Holmes, lots of other books that other people have written, uh, comic books, uh, TV shows, movies, of course. There have been more movies about Sherlock Holmes than any other imaginary character um hundreds of them hundreds of them and um what else did i say did i say stage plays of course uh there's there's a a a, a ballet called the baker street ballet okay uh it so it has been explored in every conceivable art form except the opera 
Interesting. So you know what I'm thinking. That I can't sing opera. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. It ain't going to star me, I can tell you that. But, uh, but I, do, I do love opera. And the, the whole good versus evil on a massive scale story of Holmes encountering his nemesis and the decision that the only way that I can destroy you is if, is if I go with you. You know, that is so operatic and, you know, and they have to do it on a giant waterfall in Switzerland. So they both go plunging, you know, hundreds of feet through the air to their certain death, you know, and um, leaving behind everyone who who loves Sherlock Holmes just just ruined. It's such a holy smoke. What an operatic moment. Uh, If if, if, uh, Wagner had lived a little longer, he would have written this, you know. And, but, um, and, and, and you know, if, if you think about how we watch and consume television today, whenever you're talking about that dramatic moment, let's go back to when that story was written. For all intents and purposes back then, your television was the book that you picked up and read. Yes. You know, so that was the <laughs> Game of Thrones of the day. And they're That's right. sitting there reading it saying, ah, he's dead, you know, or... I can't believe this. And they say, and and there are some people who who dispute this, but I, you know, it's one of those things I like to believe. But they say that it had such an impact in London that, and everybody was subscribing to the magazine in which the story was uh, serialized. That there were people, there were men in the street who wore black armbands. They were they were in official mourning because Sherlock Holmes was dead. Well, if I remember correctly, when they announced, well. Leading up to the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, they Mm. were very tight-lipped about, of course, what was happening in the 50th episode. But on the flip side, even the name of the preceding episode, which we now know as the name of the Doctor, Mm -hmm. was not released almost until, you know, it was about like weeks, a couple of weeks before it was set to air. That's right. So having said that, if I remember correctly, there were people picketing in the you know like streets at the BBC <laughs> because they did not want thinking. Oh no, you're about to reveal his name. We don't yes. want that. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> That's right. So uh, speaking of Doctor Who, let me ask you this: Do you ever see it possible, even if it's not uh, the current BBC version of Sherlock, a meeting of Cumberbatch or, or meet, well, a meeting of Sherlock mm-hmm. and the Doctor. Uh, there's an interesting um, a video out there where somebody uh, using uh, uh, some some lovely uh, video editing has has got a an encounter where uh, Matt Smith's Doctor uh, opens the doors of TARDIS and uh, and Benedict's uh, Sherlock comes in. It's very. Um, have you seen this? No, no, I haven't. It's all about these sort of lingering, smoldering looks. It seems to me very, very sexual. And the door is probably the way it was meant to be. I I think that was the intent. But, of course, it's made up of found footage of Matt Smith and Benedict Cumberbatch. um, But it is interesting. I mean, it really looks like this is love at first sight. And when those doors close, we we don't know where they're going. (laughs) We're in time, space, or wherever. 
<laughs> well, you know, but talk about the science fictional world uh, uh, of something like Doctor Who overlapping with Sherlock. You know, uh, Nicholas Meyer, um, who was sort of the uh, the rescuer of the franchise in a way. People were were starting to kind of lose interest in Sherlock Holmes in the '60s and '70s, and he wrote the Seven Percent Solution, which was a huge bestseller. And then they made a film of it, and the film was a big hit too. And uh, it really revived people's interest in Sherlock Holmes. And uh, it's one of the reasons why he gets tapped to resurrect the franchise and direct uh, The Wrath of Khan. Mm, interesting. Which he wanted to call The Undiscovered Country. Even more interesting. Yes. Uh, the original, all, all of the first drafts of that script are called The Undiscovered Country, which is, of course, a quote from Hamlet, and it's about being dead. And uh, that makes sense of yep. calling it... The, the undiscovered country, and then later that title does get used, and you have Christopher Plummer as a Klingon saying, "The undiscovered country, the future." The, yeah, and Shakespeare fans everywhere f- faint and fall out of their seats. <laughs> no, that's not what the undiscovered. Anyway, but oh, but as oh. Nicholas Meyer, a Sherlockian, now has this big role in the sh- in the Star Trek universe, and of course he's he's one of the writers of the the new series that's coming out very soon. Uh, now we're starting to get all these Sherlock references inside Star Trek and, and, you know, crowning with Mr. Spock saying, one of my ancestors used to say, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So a lot of us said, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, that is, that, that is brilliant. <laughs> one, so, so, yeah, one of Amanda's, we are on his human side, one of her ancestors was Sherlock Holmes. All right, so let me so let me ask you this. I remember now what I was about to ask a minute oh, ago, yeah. which was do do you see it possible for Cumberbatch to play the doctor? Um I guess it depends on what you mean by possible. Meaning because now he's about to be a doctor, not the doctor yeah. in Doctor mm-hmm. Strange. Right. Do you see him being more progressing in his career toward, you know, the big screen away from the small screen? Or do you see him as a contender for a future doctor? Or is he too ingrained into the Sherlockian? Yeah, I, I, I just think he's he's now too big for television. He's I mean, the, the more feature films that he does. Yeah, I'm not sure we'll we'll see him again. On TV, yeah, um, I'm kind of with you there, especially if if the kicker I think here is how well will Doctor Strange do? Yeah, and if Doctor Strange performs as well as most Marvel movies have, that that there will definitely be you know Doctor Strange two, and then mm-hmm. I think uh, you know there's I think I read somewhere or someone said that he may be in the next Thor, that there may be a scene with him in Thor. So if that be the case, there will be other Marvel movies. And not just Marvel, there'll be other stuff that he would, I'm sure, get roles for. I I know from my sources that uh, he has a role, Doctor Strange has an important role to play in the Infinity War. Ah. So you can't do it without him. Gotcha. Which, so there's, yeah. you know, that goes back into, you know, as in regards to writing, I'm going to tie this in yeah. uh, to, to Sherlock. Sherlock would not have survived as a character 
had the original stories not been so well crafted. Was, would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. So I think that is one reason that Marvel has done so well in crafting their universe. They've given so much thought to it and making a solid story, not just a flashy Come, come watch the bang, the you know the yeah. destruction, and look at the shiny colors or shiny lights and right. bright colors. Absolutely, oh, it's, it's what I so enjoy about the, the the Marvel Universe movies is that they are about people, even if they are people who you know <laughs> X Y Z extraordinary. You know, even if they come from Asgard, you know, we're still interested in them because of the things that we can relate to as human beings. Exactly. And, and it's where DC has missed the boat. That if the, I can't relate emotionally to their Superman or to their Batman, and so I don't care. And, and there and, and, and lies the problem with the DC Universe story, is mm-hmm. if, you don't, if you can't get people to care about your characters... Right. You can't make them go out and sell it for you because right. you're going to have the people who are going to come regardless. You know, you're going to have the yeah. new people that are going to come because, hey, it's Superman, and, you know, they're going to come. But if you and I spent as much time saying positive things uh, about the DC stuff, <laughs> imagine. And, and, and I'm going to prove what I'm saying here. Uh, I was in uh, getting comic books a couple of weeks ago, and Matthew, who's one of our listeners uh-huh. and uh, who sends us regular feedback. I said, think he's our only listener, actually. I know, I know we've got another <laughs> feedback coming up from another gentleman uh, that you may be familiar with, but I'll let you listen and find out who. Um, but um, Matthew said, you know, hey, I was listening to your review of Suicide Squad, and I hadn't been to see it, but after listening to Clarence's take on it, I'm going to go see it. Mm. So my point in saying that is, this is somebody that said, I'm probably not going to go see it, listened to what Clarence had to say, and said, "Mm, I'm going to give it a try. If you and I had liked Dawn of Justice the way you like Sherlock or the way I like Doctor Who... Imagine right. our, oh, you've got to go see this, you've got to go see this. And mm-hmm. that would have been, so if we've got a very small uh, listeners right now, imagine that trickle down. If You see what I'm saying? The word of mouth, make good content is what my ultimate point is. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you, if, you, if we're excited about it and, and we want to, yeah, we, we want to tell people, look, there's a, commit, there's a connection there. There's something really happening. Exactly. You no. Know? This is one of the things, uh, I know I talk about my wife an awful lot here, but I'm in love, so, you know, forgive me. But um, this is one of the things that she studies and writes about is, is this, this miracle that happens with good entertainment, with good drama and comedy, is that we transport into those characters. They become avatars of us, and we feel what they feel on the screen, and we expect them to behave the way we would if we were in that situation. And it's very psychologically complex in a way, and we all experience it constantly. But it means that there's a contract. If I'm going to invest the time to emotionally transport into another character, they've got to be somebody who is like me, enough like me, that I can understand them. Exactly. 
Exactly. And you know, I want to I want to mention your wife one more time. <laughs> one thing that we failed to mention, and I want you to share this with the audience. Uh, one thing that we failed to mention when we were talking about Herlock was how she was instrumental in you making that decision <laughs> to even do the Herlock idea. And I want you to tell what she, what she said. Yeah, it really was her idea in the first place. Was she said what? You know, there, there's such a dearth of, um, of, um, of female role models, of positive role models, you know. Oh, let's do a Sherlock where everybody's, everybody's female. And um, it's interesting to watch how much things have changed since then. I mean, look at all the positive female role models that are in the mass media now. It's, 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 it's really a thrilling time in that way. But um, we had just seen um, The Great Mouse Detective. And, um, you know, we'd watched some other things. And, uh, and her question was, why can Sherlock Holmes be a cartoon or a mouse, but he can't be a woman? And I think that is brilliant. I really yeah. do. We put it on the T-shirts. I mean, it, they said Sherlock on the front, and on the back they said, <laughs> you know. And I thought, yeah, you put your finger right on it. How demeaning is that? That we'll buy the character if he's a mouse, but, <laughs> but can't be a woman. Yeah, you know, and yeah. I think that's, you know, that just, you know, it speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. So um, I just want to say that I have, I think we've pretty much covered all of Sherlock that we can cover at this point. So um, I want to anybody to, left listening. Yeah. Yep. Uh, not, no, there are. There, there always are. You know, I have enjoyed having the one on one with you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's I know we will be recording an episode of um my brain went dead again. We'll, we, we will be recording an episode of Doctor Who Podshot, and we will be reviewing yes. a Troughton episode. Not to mm-hmm. say which one, because we want you to listen to Podshot right. and find out, but we will we'll say surprised. that if you like the number two of the second <laughs> Doctor, you will probably enjoy listening to our review. That's all I'll say. Yes. All right. Well, when we come back, we have a review of Stranger Things, our episode that we just had a couple of episodes ago. It is Stranger Things review by a person known to both myself and Lee. So we'll have his review when we come back. I want to thank everybody for listening. And we'll have the review, and then I will be back. I'm going to go ahead and let Lee go, because I think he has got something else that he's about to do after we finish. So I'll be back to wrap up after our feedback. Yeah, I have a solid commitment after this. Absolutely solid. Hi guys, hi clowns, Kyle and Lee, it's Dave AC and I'm phoning in to give some feedback on your episode 15 of Discussing Who, the one where you were talking about Stranger Things, uh, the great new series that's just been recently on Netflix. Uh, Thanks for the uh, chat guys, I enjoyed listening to your podcast and uh, I just wanted to add a few comments of my own if I may. 
I agree that um, having it set in the 80s really set the, the tone and the style for this. Uh, it's always difficult with the, this sort of uh, suspense type of program where you essentially have to have people isolated in many ways. Very difficult to have that in the modern day with all the, the phones and so on. But I, I really enjoy this sort of slightly weird mix of nostalgia, horror, fantasy, science fiction. Uh, yes, it was a real bundle pile, I think one of you two guys said that. Um, I thought the uh, people that they picked to uh, be cast for this were great. Uh, you weren't too sure about Winona Ryder, but I thought she was actually excellently casted because uh, ooh, way, way back she was in a film with Angelina Jolie called... Um, Girl Interrupted, yes, she was uh, with her, where she played uh, a girl in a mental institution. And of course, one of the things about this show is when you say whether she was able to portray a, a mentally disarranged woman, in effect, of course she wasn't. And the uh, the sheriff and all the the people who, who, who saw her talk thought she had lost her marbles, but in actual fact... Uh, you have only lost your marbles if what you're thinking, strange as it may be, is not in fact true. And she found this way of communicating uh, via the lights. And as you said, it was only towards the end when you realised that the actual uh, young boy was in an alternate version of the house uh, that was uh, allowing him to light up and have that conversation with her. Um, the whole style of the show was really great. Uh, the, the sort of wounded sheriff with his his past of having lost a child, disaffected kids, you know, that were being bullied at school, and of course into their lives is this young girl. And um, you made some comment about the fact that uh, you weren't quite sure about uh, why this girl had the you know the shorn hair and uh, and was looking uh, in the way that she did. Well, actually, that worked completely well for the plot. Of course, while she was in that facility, uh, they were having electrodes on her head, so it it would be quite natural that they would have shaved her hair. It also played into the fact that when uh, this young girl was seen at the the diner. Um, the report that the sheriff got was that it could well have been a boy or a girl. And of course that sent him off on this particular track of investigation. So I thought that all fed him very well. I agree that it was rather um, strange about this place. I mean, it seemed to be so near to the village and yet people hardly almost knew it existed until they basically hit that hard wired fence. But um, to say what it was doing, whether it was a government establishment of uh, whatever nature, uh, I think there was one little part in it that helped clarify that, and that was the fact that when she was, the young girl was told to look at photographs and concentrate, uh, in one of the sequences, she was standing around or walking around uh, what appeared to be some sort of Russian person, maybe a, an intelligence officer in uh, the in Russia and and this is something that they didn't really clarify later on as you quite rightly pointed out because everything seemed to happen uh, for instance uh, you know uh, one of the guys walked through the the hole the aperture in the facility uh, on that tether uh, when uh, the older sister went into that tree through that thing which I agree was totally out of character she'd been a little bit of a wimp but there she was bravely going in 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 there in search everything seemed to be happening at the same 
uh, spatial coordinates as it were but in this sort of underworld but the the sequence with the uh, young girl appearing to be listening in to the Russian having a conversation that could, of course could have been anywhere in the world so I think uh, that was the reason it was not specific to this particular town uh, especially with the uh, uh, the skills that this young girl had and I agree with you when she called this guy Papa I was wondering well oh I wonder if he'd met he was the one that made a a, a mother pregnant but of course uh, when when the sheriff and uh, the mother go to see this woman who's lost a child so many years ago um, they find out from her, her sister that she was already a few months pregnant when she'd been taken into this um, trading program that they've been undergoing so what did I think I thought it was really good I mean I can't uh, praise enough the young child actors and that uh, younger gating boy who played Dustin uh, if you can check on YouTube just listen to that boy sing uh, he's been on a stage production of Les Miserables and he's got an absolutely brilliant voice but um, the, the other the other cast members were great David Harbour of course is the uh, chief Jim Hopper and uh, and then of course all the, all, all the children in particular the I thought the the young girl the whole program hinged on the fact that she could portray that young girl terrified in the institution and yet actually having these amazing powers and the way that she bonded so well with the children and of course the actress who played uh, that character 11 was uh, Millie Bobby Brown which is a strange name a Spanish-born British actress along with the other uh, children there absolutely uh, bravado performance and uh, some of the stunts they did I thought were really great it, it seemed to have a, a fairly high budget for uh, Netflix and uh, although a lot of the scenes were very dark it looked uh, extremely good so I will stop there uh, Ian seems to think that I do go on a little bit with these little reviews and what have you but uh, keep on with your discussing who guys uh, already well into 15 or 16 episodes and uh, I am subscribed on iTunes okay back to the main show thanks for listening hi guys it's Matthew I'm a bit behind on getting some feedback to you guys on your most recent episode, so I wanted to talk about a couple of things uh, that you guys have talked about recently. Uh, first, uh, Star Trek Beyond. I enjoyed your uh, reviews and comments on it. Uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan and was really looking forward to this movie and, uh, and really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it, of the three J.J. Abrams uh, Star Trek movies, it's certainly the most... Star Trekky, if I can say that it uh, it felt more like uh, like the older Star Trek than the other two movies, which I enjoyed to varying degrees. But I was very happy with this movie and uh, and very uh, discouraged to see the box office returns on it. It does uh, not perform nearly as well as the others. Some of that may be because it seems to be a bad summer for uh, for sequels. Uh, and remakes 
But uh, it may also be that, you know, uh, that kind of more traditional Star Trek is just not what uh, theater audiences are going to flock to. The big blockbuster movies tend to be more um, just kind of popcorn entertainment and, uh, and not anything with a lot of depth. Not that Star Trek Beyond had depth in the same sense of some of the uh, previous films like, uh, you know, something like uh, The Undiscovered Country or, uh, or even um, uh, First Contact, you know, where there's some, you know, heavy character issues underlying uh, uh, some of the th- action in those films and, and some politics. Beyond gets into that a little bit. I thought the uh, the villains, um, you know, his uh, kind of survival of the fittest, um, anti uh, uh, various races coming together. You know, the in the Federation is unity and and uh, strength and unity, whereas uh, um, the villain was was proposing more. You know, we should go it alone. I thought in in the context of uh this year's election was uh was very timely but uh, at the same time uh I felt that that some of the issues like the villain's motivation and like Kirk's uh uh thoughts about leaving Starfleet and everything or rather leaving the enterprise and taking a desk job were not as uh, explored with the the depth that they could have been, so it was kind of in the middle a little bit. I felt like, but overall, I enjoyed it. Uh, but it it also with the box office returns helps reinforce my thought that Star Trek is probably much better suited to television, where you can kind of get into some of the the philosophical issues with a bit more depth. Um, and uh, and kind of expand out on uh, storylines in a much longer uh, format over several episodes. So I'm really excited about the uh, Star Trek Discovery series that's uh, that's coming up. Um, secondly, uh, uh, I also wanted to say a little bit about your uh, review of Suicide Squad. I still haven't had a chance to see it yet. Um, I really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about it. I've been on the fence about this movie. Um, I may be a little bit of a purist sometimes when it comes to comic adaptations. Generally, I look at adaptations into other media as their own thing, and I don't get too worried about if they match up with the details of the comics. But there are some things that I I feel like they can stray too far from, and and then it it has no real relation to the source material, and uh, and it uh, it kind of uh, loses my interest at that point. I was afraid Suicide Squad could be heading that way. A, a lot of it due to the just the design of the Joker character. Um, the whole tattoo thing, and especially the, the damaged tattoo on his forehead, I felt was um, a little over the top, and, and spe- especially having damaged on his head seemed a little too on the nose. I was afraid the movie was going to veer into kind of almost being like a self-parody. But uh, but Clarence's review has kind of uh, uh, encouraged me to give it a shot. Um, I haven't had a chance. I don't really get to get out to the theaters as often uh, these days with uh, a couple of uh, little ones in the house. But but I'm definitely planning on seeing it sometime as soon as I can. And 
and really enjoyed hearing you guys talk about that one. Anyway, uh, thanks for uh, uh, thanks for all the discussion you've had over the last few episodes, and I'm looking forward to the next one. We would like to say thanks once again to Dave and Matthew for their feedback. As always, we welcome feedback and we appreciate both of them taking their time, energy, and delivering comments to us that were both insightful and trust me, we greatly appreciate. Now, if you would like to send feedback, you can do this and send feedback on this episode or any of the other episodes. And to do so, you can do that by using one of the following methods. You can record an audio clip on your smartphone and email it to discussingwho at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail by calling 805-850-DWHO. That's 805-850-3946. Or, if you would rather, send us written feedback. We'd welcome that, too. Simply send us an email to discussingwho at gmail.com, and we may read it on one of the future episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at discussingwho, and join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com backslash discussingwho. As always, make sure to keep up to date by all the latest episodes by subscribing on iTunes. Finally, be sure to join us for the very next episode, so a little bit of a spoiler here. We will be discussing the top five, or at least our top five, Doctor Who companions. All this and more on our very next episode. And, as usual, with that, we are out of here. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.